over the last number of weeks and for the foreseeable future, we're making our way through the book of Hebrews. And just a, a comment, I, I, I'm loving Hebrews personally for this reason. We, we spent a year going from Genesis to Revelation, Route 66, and looking at every sign that points to Jesus. And we spent some time looking at the Gospels. And then coming out of that, you come to the uh, book of Hebrews, and it, it takes the Old Testament, New Testament life of Christ, and weaves it together into the application and the understanding. So again, it's rooted in the Old Testament, comes alive in the New. I'm going to read this morning, starting in chapter 4, verse 14, to set the context, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So, also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, he cites from Psalm 2, the great Messianic Psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you, or from Psalm 110, verse 4, another Messianic Psalm, he says, in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, that is for those 33 years of his earthly life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order, there it is again, of Melchizedek. As we continue our journey through the encouragement text of this letter written to frightened and struggling Hebrews, we find ourselves navigating through quite unfamiliar territory. Unless you are a regular reader of Harry Potter, the Lord of the Rings, or a devotee of Downton Abbey or the Crown, terms like king, priest, prophets, those draw you into strange places. But for the first readers, these terms were a staple from their infancy onward. In the absence of those most familiar things, their hearts were feeling a nearly irresistible pull to go back, to let go of their faith in Christ Jesus and to return to the comfort of those familiar rituals and routines. I lift a three-word outline from R. Kent Hughes, one of my favorite expositors, where he breaks the text down in two movements, and it's solidarity, sympathy, selection. It, what we do in chapter 5 is 
we move into the second major section of the book that will carry us all the way through chapter 5. But as he breaks it down in the first four verses here, he goes into detail describing the qualifications for a high priest. And then in verses 5 through 10, he asks the question, does Jesus meet those qualifications? And so he starts by talking about our solidarity. He must be human. Our sympathy must be able to understand. And the selection, he must be divinely appointed. He does that in verses 1 to 4. And then he flips it over, verses 5 to 10. He reverses it, and he talks about his selection. He was divinely appointed. His sympathy, he was tested and vetted. And therefore, solidarity, he was both God and man with us. But the first one, notice in verse 1, from every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. The first thing to notice is he is talking here about a high priest. The word priest, I think, appears in the book of Hebrews some 25, 27 different times. High priest appears 10 different times. We come to the seventh occurrence of it by the time we get to the end of our verses this morning. It is a high priest, and he is, notice, chosen from among men. Not self-appointed, doesn't run a campaign, and he's elected, but there is a divine ordination, appointment to the task so that he can act, his is an active role, on behalf of men, fallen, sinful men, in relationship to holy, unstained, unapproachable God. And to do that, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the role of a high priest, their familiarity was is that when you had a great bumper crop, a harvest, and you, were, you wanted to thank the Lord for his goodness and all, you would take a gift to the temple or a gift to the tabernacle. You would give it to the priest. He would receive it on God's behalf, and God would accept that as an offering of praise or gratitude. But the other one was he was also required to offer sacrifices for sins. When you talk about sacrifices now, we're talking about bloodletting, we're talking about bloodshedding, we're talking about an innocent animal losing its life so that its applied blood could cover the offenses or the sins of one. So in order to accomplish that, the high priest had to be human. He had to be a real man in real relationship serving a real living God. Second, he had to be sympathetic. He had to be able to understand what the people were going through, verse 2, so that he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset by weaknesses. It was not a one-day-a-year calling. People always talk about the privilege that we pastors have that we only have to work one day a week, and they're right. We only work on Sundays. You pay us really well for that, and when we go into overtime to give you your money's worth, you complain about that. I've never understood. In this case, the high priest was not just simply sitting around on a beach someplace waiting for the Day of Atonement. He had one appointment a year where they would receive the offerings of the people. He would go into the holy place and then finally into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, receive the forgiveness of God, and go back and pronounce it to the people. But rather, he is one who himself is beset by weaknesses so that, this is a key word, he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Let's talk about that gently first. 
It simply means gentleness is simply strength under control. It, it, it is not exercising the harshness or the, or the power that you have, but appropriately governing, guiding your response to situations to be kind and understanding. It, 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 it's a word that lands between these two extremes. There, there is apathy on the one side. The high priest is not to be passive about the sins of the people. He is not to be not considered. You can't just live through 364 days a year and go, I know that the people are rebelling against God. I know that they're living uh, sinfully and, and all of that. But it doesn't matter because the day of atonement is coming and we'll take the blood, we'll apply it. God will forget it all and move forward. They can't be apathetic. On the other hand, they are not also to react with harshness or anger. They're not to be hypersensitive, judgmental. What keeps them from being Apathetic or judgmental is the reality. They too struggle with the same things. So they are the kind of people that are supposed to be involved with the people, live amongst the people, feel the struggles of the people. The qualification, therefore, in between is sympathy from their own personal struggles, from their own need for covering and forgiveness. They are experiencing the grace of God. He calls it here, two different kinds of sins. There is the sins of the ignorant, and there are the sins of the wayward. Turn to the book of Numbers, way back in the left of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Find chapter 15. And look for verse 22. Many other places in the Old Testament, but this, is, this expresses it as well as any. If, if you sin unintentionally, and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave the commandment onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull for the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven because it was a mistake. They brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven. And the stranger who sojourns among them because the whole population was involved in the mistake. It is, it is a, an unawareness, it's, a, it's an omission of obedience as it were. But I want you to notice that the plan of God does not take our incidental, unintentional offenses and just sweep them under the rug. But he offers a forgiveness. He offers a sacrifice. That's for the whole group of people who are guilty before a holy God. In verse 27, what about you as an individual? If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make an atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the people of Israel and also for the stranger who sojourns among them. Watch this though. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, he reviles the Lord, that person shall be cut off from among his people. 
because he has despised the word of the Lord, he has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Back in Hebrews, he describes it as the sins of ignorance, which means unintentional omission. Or there's also the sin of waywardness. I know the path I ought to walk upon, but I have chosen to live my own way. But along the way in your waywardness, either the conscience that's convicted by the Holy Spirit, or perhaps a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and said, boy, I don't think you're going to like the end of this road if you keep going that way. And you come to your senses and you repent from that and you return. There is a offering for you. There is a sacrifice made for you. The role of the high priest is to remember that you too are a sinner. You too have needed forgiveness. When people come to you, be sympathetic and be gracious. There again, every morning there's this long line and the priest sees them coming and he sees down and he goes, well, there comes Rempel again. Wasn't he here two days ago bringing me an offering, a sacrifice? He's done it again. And rather than become impatient, he needs to recognize that I too have sinned. So now for the priest himself, go back to the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, third book in Leviticus. And the Day of Atonement, chapter 16, just want to highlight a few phrases here. On this Day of Atonement, which was the annual day when they would bring two goats, and one of them, as we talked about last week, was a scapegoat led into the wilderness with the sins of the people going away from them. The other one, the sin goat, the, the blood offering that would be slaughtered and laid upon the altar. On that day, it begins in this way. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, after the death of the sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd of a sin offering and a ram for the offering. Drop down to verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the tent of the meeting. Notice the 11th verse. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Again, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, bringing the blood inside the veil and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Back to the book of Hebrews and the fifth chapter again. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset by weaknesses. Now what he is going to do is he's going to contrast the Levitical line of the priesthood, the line of Aaron, with the biblical high priest, that is Christ. The history of the uh, Aaronic uh, priesthood is one of repeated failure. Remember that is while Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and night, the people get, get frightened and scared, and they said, well, we, we need a God that we can identify with, having come out of Egypt. And they said, make us a God, and we'll follow that God. And so Aaron said, bring me all your gold. He melted it down, and he molded and shaped a golden calf. And they worshipped it and said, this is the God that delivered us from the land of captivity. 
And God visited them with judgment. It was Aaron, the high priest, who stands before God on behalf of sinful people that actually led them, provided for them, this idol. In that particular case, as you read it in the Old Testament, therefore it was not Aaron who was able to be the priest, the mediator between the sin of the people and the holy God they descended. But Moses himself had to become both prophet and priest for the moment as he appealed to God to visit them with mercy. Then I was thinking about another one, and the, the whole failure of the line of Aaronic priests, and it came to 1 Samuel chapter 1. You remember the story where uh, Hannah uh, had longed to have a child. Her husband's other wife was having child after child. She didn't have one. She would go down during the Holy Week, and she would go into the temple, and she would cry out to God for a pregnancy. She just wanted to have a son. They're sitting at the door watching all of this, is none other than a fat guy by the name of Eli, whose two sons were committing all form of immoral sin with the young women that served in the temple. And he knew it. He said to his sons at one point, he says, you know, what the people are saying about you is not good. And he did nothing. Apathy. He's sitting there, and he sees this woman come in, And her heart is so burdened by her longing that she can't even come up with words to express her heart's desire to the Lord. And it says that she is praying, but her lips are moving and no words are coming out. And the other extreme of the thing, and he becomes angry and he rebukes her for coming to worship drunk. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm simply asking the Lord. My heart is broken. And he sent her away blessed. That's the tradition of the Aaronic priesthood. So then it comes down to selection, verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now you need to go back to, again to the second book in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, and let your eyes find the 28th chapter. If you read chapter 28, and 29, you will see that, that Aaron and his sons were divinely chosen, ordained by God, and provided for, chapter 28. Then bring near Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all of the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine linen. And it tells us over in verse 36, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. So you read that and you come back, God appoints the high priest, and you're thinking, are you kidding? Who would even want to be the high priest? All day long, from morning to night, you're dealing with the failures of God's people. They're confessing their sins to you over and over. They're asking you to slaughter this animal and put it on the altar so that God will forgive their sins. Who would want that? Well, those of the who aspire to the dignity of the office. You see, the high priest had the most striking wardrobe of everybody in the camp. He was clearly set apart, unique, different. 
Moses, the great leader of the children of Israel, he was dressed like an everyday shepherd going to work. But his brother Aaron had this, this regal outfit on. It was a position of honor and dignity, and everybody became jealous of that. So he comes to chapter 5. What about or chapter 5, verse 5? What about Jesus? Did, did Jesus himself make himself a high priest because he coveted that high and holy position? And the answer is no. He was, first of all, chosen, divinely appointed by God. He cites Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. And again, from Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All of a sudden, we're introduced to another name, another type of priest. You see the beauty, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. The amazing thing is that Melchizedek was declared to be a representative between sinful people and a holy God many, many years before the law was given and many years before Aaron was appointed to be the Levitical representative of the people of God before God. He's a unique individual. Actually, he was a Canaanite, and yet he is called of God to this position. He says to his son, you are just like Melchizedek. You are the one. You did not take this for yourself. You see, those who were struggling about going back because they, they kind of like the regal garments of the priest and they like the rituals and the routines and there's just something more comforting and secure about that than being gathered together in a hovel somewhere in the shadow of the Roman throne worried that they might lose their lives at any moment and it, there, was, there, there, was, there was no altar, there was no incense. There was no fine garments. It was just easier to be drawn back. So the question is, did Jesus appoint? You're saying that he has met the qualifications. There were three situations that I found as I was reflecting back through the Old Testament where someone not qualified. You see, up until Melchizedek, the combination of prophet, priest, and king fit no one. And it wasn't, it wasn't right or acceptable for the king to also be the priest. They were two separate roles. The prophet, he was the greatest prophet, he says in chapter 1, verse 1. After God had spoken in many times and in many ways over the many years, he has now spoken finally through his son. He's the prophet. But he is also the king. He is the sovereign ruler over all. God appointed him to be king of kings and lord of lords. But there were many kings that had been down through the years, beginning back with Saul, David, Solomon, and onward. But to combine the king, the sovereign representative, authoritative representative of God, with also the mediator who would go before a holy God with the sacrifices of a sinful people, they had not been combined apart from Melchizedek. But in Numbers chapter 16, Korah tried to take this honor for himself. Go back to Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers chapter 16. Now Korah, and he goes through this long list. It's, it's like you say, he's the son of Ishar, the son of, the son of, the son of, and you ask yourself the question, why did they go to all this detail about the son of? Well, they are pre-writing his obituary. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation 
chosen from the assembly, well-known men. These are movers, shakers, and influencers. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And they said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He said to Korah and all other 249 of them, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. And the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. So do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your, all your company, Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, you sons of Levi. Read the rest of the story. By the next day, God spoke. He appointed and affirmed Aaron. And 250 rebellious priests became crispy critters. He wrote their obituary prematurely. So the sympathy. Verse 7, if Jesus is appointed to be the priest, can he understand the trials that we're going through? So in verse 7, he says, in the days of his flesh, that is the 33 years that Jesus lived on earth, he offered up prayers, that is adoration and praise, and supplication, that is request and petitions, and he did it with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard become of his reverence. He offered up prayers, petitions before God. In the margin of your Bible, you want to write down Mark chapter 14. Clearly he is speaking about the last night that Jesus was on earth and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's asking his father this question. Is there any way to accomplish the redemption of sinful people short of me having to go to the cross? Remember when Jimmy and Johnny asked their mom to go ask Jesus if one of them could sit on the right and one on the left? They didn't care which one. It was pretty, both pretty good seats of honor. But, and he said to them, are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? In the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he gave his life, Jesus said, Father, if possible, remove this cup from me. It says, and he prayed with tears went back through the Gospels. I can only find three times when Jesus shed tears. The first one I found was in John chapter 11, when he received word that his dear friend Lazarus had died. And he came to Bethany, and he asked the sisters, where have you buried him? And they took him into the graveyard. And knowing that within minutes, he was going to call him back from the dead. It says, it says, every kid in Juana wants to learn this verse so that they can play the games. Jesus wept. I mean, he just he, he shook uncontrollably. The second time was on the triumphal entry. The day they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, and he presented himself to be their king. And for a moment, they thought he might be. And it says, as, as his donkey rose over the crest of the hill and his eyes could behold the beauty of the holy city, he projected forward 70 years to the total destruction of that beautiful place. 
And he saw the burned out homes. He saw the temple stripped of its gold and its silver without a stone left on top of another. He saw his people devastated. Why? Because they had passed by their opportunity to embrace their Messiah, their king. His heart was broken. And then there's the tears of Gethsemane. When he cried and said, Father, is there any way that you can remove this cup from me? Notice in verse 8, he says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was pressed to the breaking point. And yet notice when he appealed to God for another way of salvation that would not involve the the cruelty of the cross. It says that he responded by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Philippians chapter 2 verse 7, it talks in Philippians 2 that he did not consider equality with God the thing to be white-knuckled, to be grasped, but, but he humbled himself, he kept on the form of a man, and he humbled himself even to the point of death. And then it goes even further, it says, even death on a cross. That reason God then has raised him up, he's highly exalted him, and he's given him the name that is above every other name. So that one day, at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Most of them with their arm jammed up behind their back. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He obeyed. The beauty of his obedience is he has opened up a way so that those of us who will obey him will also have access to the Father. Our high priest has been tested and vetted. His ultimate struggle far exceeded any trial we will ever face. His greatest war was waged in the dark shadows of Gethsemane. The Father's answer to his impassioned plea was not a path around the cross, but a road that led straight into a grave. So having asked that this cup be taken from him, he surrendered his will to the will of the Father. He rose to his feet and he marched resolutely to his cross. No Roman politician, no team of Hebrews, pseudo-religious leaders could even prevent his impending death. He was not murdered. He gave his life willfully. And though he was not delivered from death, he was delivered out of death. For the grave could not hold him. He came to die so that death would ultimately die. And because his cup was not removed, he is far more equipped to lead us through our hour of greatest trial, even if that means to cross through the valley of the shadow. He came near to invite us to come near. Come boldly before the throne of grace. And last of all, his his identity with humanity. Verse 9 then being made perfect, that doesn't mean that there was imperfection in him, but it means that he was made complete, that he validated his calling and his qualification as the sinless one, because in this case, not only is the officiant high priest, but he also offers himself as the lamb, the sacrifice. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. He became the source of of eternal salvation. That's a a wonderful phrase. In chapter 9, verse 12, it says that he offers us an eternal redemption. 
And in chapter 13, verse 20, it says that he will make for us an eternal covenant, eternal salvation that has a wonderful ring to it for all of those who were born and raised in a biblical environment where of, of daisy theology. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me. If you have never gone to sleep at night, fearful that perhaps you had committed some sin for which you had failed to seek forgiveness, confession, you worried that Jesus would come during the night and you would be one of those who was left behind. And you can't understand the beauty of he himself became that source of eternal salvation. He's going to talk about that in chapter 7. He is that because he lives always to intercede, to pray on our behalf. And he does that for all who obey him because he was obedient to the Father's will. He made it possible for us to know the Father if we will obey his will. And he was then designated by God to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. To understand Melchizedek, you've got to go back to the book of Genesis and the 14th chapter. It's the most intriguing moment. The story is this, that when Lot or when Abraham had followed the Lord, uh, leaving Ur of the Chaldeans and, and going to the land of the promise, when, when they arrived there, he had taken his nephew with him. And because his nephew was associated with Abram, the blessing that God poured out on Abram was also poured out on Lot. And it wasn't long before their business enterprises were so great that there wasn't enough room for both. And finally, Abraham decided that, that we need to divide our company and you need to go someplace and operate yours and I'll go someplace and operate mine. And Abram was very gracious. He says, I, I don't care which it is. You choose where you want to go and I'll go the other direction. And so Lot looked down and he said, Sodom, I'm a, kind of a city guy. I'm going to move. So he pitches his tent near Sodom. And then by the time we come to the 14th chapter of Genesis, he's no longer living on the outskirts of the city, but he's become an urbanite. He actually lives in Sodom. There's a great war, revolt over taxation, and so five kings attack four kings, and in this battle, Sodom is overrun, and Lot and all the other residents are taken captive along with all of their goods. Word comes to Abram that his nephew Lot has been taken captive in this battle. He rounds up 312 of his trained servants, and they do almost a 200-mile over-the-road hike north to Dan, finding the victorious kings, whipping them, taking the people and the possessions, and returning almost another 200 miles. As they come to what is today known as the mount upon which Jerusalem is, we come to the 14th chapter in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shevet, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And you know the story how Abram gave him a tenth of everything that he had brought back with him. He met Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, which means he is the king of peace. Now remember in that day and age, kings were not peaceful people. They were warriors. We talked about last week in Esther chapter 4, verse 11, when they said, Esther, you need to go before the king on behalf of the people. And she goes, nobody goes into the presence of the king unless they're invited. 
And if he does not extend a scepter to you, you die. That's the tradition of kings. And in this case, this king is identified not as a king of war, but a king of peace. But he also is a priest. A rare combination. The thing that caught me as I'm reading that, and we'll talk a lot about this when we get to chapter 7, was that dead in the heart of a land that is legendary for their depravity, Canaan, there was a king of peace and a righteousness, a priest of the Most High God. And that king had to be a Canaanite. You see, the challenge about can Jesus actually be a high priest for Israel is that uh, priesthood is of the tribe of Levi and Jesus is the tribe of Judah. But the Spirit of God says, I can even make a king of peace and a priest of God most high from a Canaanite. On this very place, at this very hill, not that many years later, Abram would return, this time bringing his son of promise. He would lay up a stone altar and he would offer his son to God there. And right before the knife cut his throat, the angel of the Lord grabbed his wrist and provided a ram caught in the thickets. And many, many years later, it was in that very same place that God the Father sent not only his king of peace, he sent also his priest of God most high. But in this case, the lamb that was provided was the Son of God, Jesus himself. On the day that Jesus declared that his work was done, an entire family tribe was sent into permanent retirement. The separating veil had been torn from the top to the bottom. The flyers of the altar had burned out. The great flocks of woolly lambs were freed to live in fear no more. From the moment he cried, it is finished, every human priest became not a mediator, but a barrier. And because our great high priest is also the king of peace, his palace courts are always open, his scepter of righteousness is always extended, is inviting the needy to come near. In his presence is mercy enough to remove the deepest of your sin stains. And at his feet you will always find grace enough for your trials of today and for your future grace needs of tomorrow. And as King Melchizedek, so our King of Peace offers us bread for our hungry souls and wine for our thirsty spirits. Therefore, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy that is covering for all past failures and find grace to help that is for every trial today and tomorrow in the time of need. I love the benediction the author puts upon this book. And now may the God of peace who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.